Welcome to episode 9 of the First Corner Formula 1 podcast. On today's show, we discuss the fall of McLaren and its split from Mercedes-Benz in 2010. Is Zach Brown the new Jean Todt? And was there a cover-up at the end of the 2007 season that is yet to be discovered? All of that coming in the next 36 minutes. Marsh and Button. I mean, am I am I correct in saying Button was was kind of Wet Marsh's brainchild? Like that was his signing. Uh, yeah, because they were yeah. looking for they were looking for a Kovalainen replacement because Kovalainen was just so far off Hamilton, and like Button became available. It was it was an unusual situation. Yeah, it was quite Button often. thought he was leaving the team, and that people thought that he would he'd be sticking in with this Mercedes crowd. I think Button goes into detail in his book about it, and you could read it. I don't know exactly what he... I can't remember exactly how it came about, but it seemed to be quite simple. It was almost like, right, I've won the World Championship now. He obviously had looked at McLaren's progress in 2009, uh, had seen that they were doing better. They were... they Around around the time of Monza, Kovalainen was basically all but gone from the team. They just needed someone. They wanted somebody new. They started talking to Button. Obviously, he was in the middle of his World Championship fight, and once that... Once he... Once the World Championship was done with, then he started talking about the contract. And then it came to, you know, Ro- Rosberg was coming into the team. Barrichello was was been put aside. That was kind of, that had been decided already. Then I think Button, I, I think, I don't know if it was as a consequence of that he moved, but I think he just moved anyway because at that point, Whitmarsh was looking for a new driver. And as you say, it was Whitmarsh who brought Button, it, much way in the way Dennis brought Hamilton into McLaren and built him yes. up. Whitmarsh, who was... Uh, Ron Dennis is next in line at McLaren had brought Button in and made him his man. At this stage, Dennis was now away from the scene. After 2009, Dennis had stepped back from the team completely. He was he was ousted almost from the team and he was focusing on the, the McLaren road car company thing, trying to set that up. And he basically of a falling out consequence of the 2009 Australian Grand Prix when they Dave, what's his name? What was Hamilton's engineer at the time? Dave Brown. David Brown, I think his name was. Dave Brown, exactly. Dave, this is 2009, the Australian Grand Prix. Do you remember when at the end of the race, there was a safety car and Hamilton inherited the podium because Trulli, Jarno Trulli uh, went off track. Hamilton got by him and Hamilton let the Toyota by and the Toyota got the penalty and Dave Brown and... Hamilton went into the stewards, lied to the stewards. Basically, they were thrown out of the results. At the following race at the Malaysian Grand Prix 2009, they were disqualified from the podium. Uh, McLaren, who had just come off a very turmoilous spy scandal, political drama of stealing Ferrari's data, were already kind of being watched closely by the FIA. And on the FIA's bad side, Max Mosley was still very much at the helm there. And I think they felt that they, McLaren did not want to have this this reputation as, as a team that they were cheating all the time or they were telling lies to the stewards. And it was a pretty damaging thing from a sort of reputation and political thing that yeah. you know they went to the stewards that lied, got the podium, and then they found the radio. The team radio showed that they had let Hamilton by. But anyway, long story short, Hamilton and McLaren were thrown out after that race. Dave Brown was sacked from McLaren. 
uh, Max Mosley was kind of making noises about McLaren, you know, being an unfair team. And to protect McLaren's reputation, and I think they were planning it anyway because they were building up the road car decision, Ron Dennis had stepped back from the team after that race, like as in completely away from the Formula One scene altogether, like left. Like Hamilton's, the, the man who was, had the arm around the shoulder of Hamilton uh, had gone. And now the team was left to the helm of Martin Whitmarsh. Yeah, I know. So, and that's how, and how that so those almost lit mini seismic political structures came into effect. Yeah, there. no, that's, that's a brilliant uh, connection you've made there that I actually hadn't really. I I thought of it as just more incidental. Like Whitmarsh just uh, eventually took over, and then he just had this sort of preference. But it, it could almost be that. Do um, you remember, like the McLaren, they did seem to shift. The, they their whole emphasis under Ron Dennis was one of. Uh, absolute excellence and you know they would try to always design the fastest car even if it broke down half the time uh you know it was all about performance and you know having the absolute best of the best and it seemed to shift then a bit um with martin whitmarsh uh even the designs of uh the 2010 car that that was like a compromise that they willingly admitted that we've designed a car that'll be good in the race because we believe this uh now that refueling's banned that we need a, a car that'll be good in the race whereas you know the the uh the people who are just focused on absolute performance such as adrian newey over at red bull just designed a beast of a car he couldn't care less if it was uh a good race car it needed to be the car with the yeah, speed 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 was first yeah, and then making it making everything revolve around the the, the raw speed was the easy part but making Making a, a fast car fast is the hardest yeah, part, exactly. <laughs> that, and that was the two differences in philosophy. Yeah, and and even if you look at like two thousand and five Nurburgring, um, like if they had a pitted Raikkonen, he would have finished what second or third. They would have collected good points. I bet you, if um, again, just for context for for uh, listeners that. In that race, Raikkonen was leading the Grand Prix, and then he had a serious vibration in one of his tires, and it was getting worse and worse. And there was a chance it was coming to the, the last two laps of the race. Uh, basically, they they either had the decision to make between um, pitting Raikkonen and losing the win, but collecting good points for the championship, or just going all like going for the win. And you know, damn it, like come what may, if 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 the tire doesn't last, well, we gave it a go. And that was the Ron Dennis era, and they, they gave it a go. They didn't want to sacrifice the win. And I can I can just imagine if that race had have taken place, if that had been Button and Whitmarsh in charge and that whole ethos that they had, uh, they probably would have played the long game and just sacrificed the win to take the points. Like, I know that's conjecture on my, my part, but I think that race kind of encapsulated McLaren's attitude towards racing back then. It was to, you know, try to be the best of the best. And if we can't be the best, well, at least we did it on our own terms. Whereas Whitmarsh yeah. uh, and Button, it was more of a sort of pragmatic sort of, their image changed. Like, do you remember the way they had that, the tuned cartoon in 2012? Um, they tried yeah. to make it all real. Cool. That was so crazy. It was cringeworthy. And they're trying to make their team more like cozy and fan friendly and, uh, and they were a more approachable outfit. And Martin Whitmarsh would never say a nasty thing in an interview. And I, I think it, it's it's like they shifted from this era of outright excellence where you had Ron Dennis, this uh, OCD uh, perfectionist, and Hamilton, 
this uh, outright talent who was obsessed with winning, hyper-competitive, it, it swapped itself out for a, a much more easy-going, pliable, uh, you know, uh, steady ship in, in rough waters. But ultimately, I think what that led to was their downfall. It was, it was almost like they were settling for mediocrity. They preferred that rather than... You look at what Total Wolf has done at Mercedes and how he manages the, the hot coal that is Lewis Hamilton. And the way his whole idea is right, Lewis Hamilton's pretty much the best driver. If we think of him as, as a component of the car, how do we get the most out of that? If you have a, a an incredible engine that needs more cooling, well, you'll go out of your way to make that happen. You, you'll make allowances for that because the performance is worth it. It's kind of like that with Hamilton. It's like, yeah, let's molly coddle him, let's indulge him. Well, uh, you know, the way Bono, his race engineer, talks to Hamilton is very, it's it's just, he's completely sucking up to him, completely kissing his ass. It's almost embarrassing. It's like he's being... Still like that today, isn't it? There is a little bit of that again. Like, I'm not talking about back then, just I'm talking about in the present. Today. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, I think that that was the, the... you have these different approaches. You have guys like Whitmarsh, who I don't think he was a serial winner. Um, I think he was a very good businessman, like a good pragmatist, but uh, he eventually slinked away. And, you know, what was it he got? It was interesting what happened with Marsh. He's a podcast in himself, yeah. too. And um, basically, he came, he united this Formula One Teams Association. And yeah. this came in sort of around that time, 2010, 11, where he was trying to unite the teams to cut the costs to protect themselves mentality which is you know he had obviously had this is his own agenda and he went with this and like that in many ways um people would almost go as far as to say is that he started to sacrifice mclaren's objectives a little bit when he should his core focus should have been on formula one and the racing team that the the road car stuff was happening in the background and there was other focus on that and yeah ultimately you could you could attribute that i think Whit marsh would be quite good in a, in a role in formula one where he's running the sport or something like that. I think that's what it's suitable. Pure politics. Just, it just didn't. Yeah, exactly. It, it just didn't. It, it's not suitable for mentality is we're going racing. Here's the best of the equipment. And like, like I really don't get the, I think he was basically central to the decision in 2012 and 2013. So 2013 was like the last year of the naturally aspirated V8 era. The template of car that was conceived the rules from 2010 on 2013 was coming to an end. Um, McLaren decided after 2012, having probably the second fastest car and at some places the quickest car in 2012, uh, at some tracks, mm-hmm. around, like particularly tracks where they had harder compound Pirellis, it was a match for the Red Bull. On the softer compounds, it wasn't so good. Then in 2013, they made, invented a completely new car because all their, uh, all, the, all their design indications showed that there was a little bit more in each area of the car and that McLaren went up, made this decision to build this brand new concept of car for 2013, a completely new car. It became pretty apparent when it got to the first race that it was a car that was struggling to get into the top 10 and McLaren had clearly gone a wrong direction. And given in mind that the 2014 route regulation change, which was seismic in Formula One rule changes, like I had a brand new engine, brand new template, a car, brand new tire, everything was going to be different. Mercedes had already been cultivating their car 
for 2014, basically since 2011, as far back as 2011, they were working on the engine and were coming up with concepts to join the, 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 the turbo through the V of the engine and this kind of thing and, and trying to integrate that into the chassis. And Mercedes were always were cultivating this towards 2014 and they've been dominant ever since. What McLaren were doing, they were still like, you know, playing with their little toys and going, well, we're so the ego was getting to them a little bit where they were saying, well, we're so good. We think we can make this car behave perfectly. And then 2013, the car just didn't work. Pen, uh, basically, their their problem mainly lied in suspension like that. Where a car is pitch sensitive, they were their data simulations were telling them that, yes, our car is faster if we made this shape of wing if we made this shape a side pod it would get more airflow but they tried to put it all together and the cars apparently um one of the weaknesses of the 2012 mclaren was and even the 2011 and the 2010 one was that on, on tracks with, that were bumpy it, their their aero platform was, would get seriously interrupted it, like it was a pitch sensitive yeah. problem in a way but maybe not as wild as it was in the mid 90s they found that their car was quite peaky on certain tracks and rather than addressing the issue of the 2013 into the 2013 car, they actually enhanced that problem. And the problem was is that there was no peaks with it. There was zero. There was no peaks at all with it. It was like the car just wasn't quick enough. And they went into an even worse era of tires, so their car was even less supple to the changes. And for some reason, they were given the option at the start of 2013. McLaren went to Martin Whitmarsh and said, "Look, there's two ways we can do it. We can try and fix." this car for 2013 or we can go back to what we know with the 2012 car so there was a, a, a discussion about do we do we swap back to an old car that we know better and focus all our efforts development efforts on 2014 and there was a decision then i think very much a corporate decision that was made we can't be seen to go back to an old car and i think yeah. that was like well that was the failing of mclaren and that yeah. was like the start of the downfall of yeah. mclaren and that that protected a lot of people there that might have been slightly underperforming. Paddy Lowe had just left the team as well in 2013, and um, a few people like that had left, and, and there was a couple of people there who were making a name for themselves, and Adrian Newey's gone on record to say that in that era of the of McLaren that there was a lot of politics going on. That's and, interesting. I didn't know Adrian Newey yeah, had made that comment. Yeah. Um, yeah, he 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 had said he had said even back as far as two thousand and five that there was almost factions within mm. McLaren who wanted engineers wanted to make the car like you know they 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 wanted it to be their baby, and definitely like that. Sometimes if you're an engineer and you, you think you know everything, you come in and you you tell everyone how things are in your view, and there's a, there's definitely an element of ego going on there. And what Mercedes had managed to do was cultivate uh, cultivate an attitude of will is this affecting the car yes or no and rather than getting too caught up rather than getting too caught up in having uh you know arguments over you know mclaren recruited a lot of very tech heavy people you know they from the aerospace industry and you know like they would have that's they, they always used to go there for their talent pool for aerodynamics and and that worked well because and that all comes back to going into complete segue with this but uh, that all goes back to 2001 when Newey tried to leave the team and Ron Dennis was like, crap, we're losing Adrian Newey. So I need to recruit loads of loads of specialists in here mm. and make this kind of matrix management structure where one group of people is working on one year's car. The next group of people are working on the following year's car. And that went up as far as 2016, I believe. So yeah. and, and you've seen where McLaren's downfall was and, and how McLaren's, you know, 
Andrea Seidel has gone in there and, you know, in fairness to Zach Brown, you have to give him the credit where it's due. I, I think uh, highly of him, yeah. Yeah, uh, the credit where it's due, he's been very, very pragmatic towards the whole thing. Like, he he joined the team at the back end of 2016. Uh, in 2017, he was kind of sold the idea, oh, you know, his engineers were telling him, oh, look, if we had the if we had the Mercedes engine now, we'd be up there with Red Bull and, you know, and telling them that, Honda, you know, they were putting all their blame on Honda. And, you know, they, when in reality, 2018, the clothes came off, they had the same engine as Red Bull and they were absolutely nowhere. And in yeah. fairness to Zach, he instead of, you know, he just took he put a brave face on it and said, right, OK, this is what we're changing. And like Zach Brown, to his credit, knows in other motorsport categories, he does. He's, he's got an, a unique knack of being able to cultivate sponsors and sponsorship and also put right people in the right places and hire the right people. It's yeah. um, it's it's, I mean, it's it's very good. Like it's it's it's, and it really is as simple as that. Putting the right people in the right place, and yes, uh, like that's what Eddie Irvine said was the genius of Jean Tot. He said he he hadn't a clue really about the technical side, but what he understood was uh, getting the best talent in all the right positions, and then just letting them do their thing. Um, like what what was the like, and I look at Total Wolf like that. You know, you don't look at Total Wolf and think, oh, he's some uh, massive brain or something. But he, he's just, um, he's the whole organization structure of Mercedes seems to just be very harmonious and well run. Whereas I think with McLaren, it, it was all this ego stuff. You had all these factions and these different, you know, Ron Dennis's sort of perfectionist style. Uh, would have contrasted with some other people at the the organization whereas with mercedes it just seems to be like this sort of alliance of um all these really talented people just all with a singular goal of of winning and like wasn't james allison talking about like a a different approach that mercedes seemed to take was that um he would have like broad cooperation between the different uh, areas within the team. So the aerodynamics department, you know, uh, the engine department, all the, they would, they were very well integrated and they were all cooperating with each other as opposed to the, the typical corporate mentality of let's like divide up our organization. We've got all these six different departments and they're all uh, vying for resources and they're all trying to justify their own position and that'll drive them to new heights because you know they're competing with each other and yes there is a a, a logic to that but it it's often counterproductive because you know that that's when that's when the politics comes into play and i get the impression with mercedes that it's they just did the best to make this like the least toxic environment possible and I, I think with McLaren, it was the complete opposite of that. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I, that whole era of like 2010 through to 2012, McLaren were just this political behemoth. I mean, there was, there was a, a perception that they were still the best team because, you know, uh, the uh, center and Woking looked incredible and like the, their, factory look futuristic and shiny and uh the politicians like whitmarsh uh were always talking about you know with hindsight we could have done this and then we would have won and uh we've all this untapped uh potential still to come in the car and it was they would never just admit 
What was yeah, our nickname for him? Martin, yeah. with, Martin with hindsight, wasn't it? Martin with hindsight, yeah. With <laughs> hindsight. Uh, he said it near enough every single interview. Um, pure politician, and that is what politicians do. Their job is to obfuscate an obscure reality so that uh, the listener, uh, it, it's like a palatable reality to them, whatever it is. that You know, you, you have to twist uh, any given situation to make it, uh, as I say, palatable to, to the listener. And yeah. that's all he did. Um, and yet, if you looked at the results, it's like if you strip away all that PR garbage and you looked at the results, it was pretty much a one-way street downwards. And uh, I think with Hamilton, he he must have sensed that. Uh, he, he mightn't have been able to sort of fully articulate it, but he, I think he was picking up enough signals that there's something off with this team. And when, once he was convinced of the project that Mercedes had, and it really was that, it was a project, um, I think, and obviously the money, <laughs> I think he was he was sold. And... Yeah, like, he, his attitude probably, like, I know he has affection for a lot of the people still there, how could he not? But I'm sure a lot of his attitude leaving that team was kind of good riddance, you know? In a, in a way, and I probably felt that the team wasn't, like, much in the way like Alonso might have felt in 2007, probably yeah. felt that the team wasn't fully behind him and had to do his results on track. And, um, the, the like, nothing more evident than that, that the one-time button had out-qualified him and they picked the wrong... I, I, again, he went for the, a different wing setup compared to Button in qualifying at Spa 2012. Spa, yeah, and what yeah. does he do? But goes and releases the team's te- telemetry on the qualifying lap, comparing himself and Button to the whole worldwide media. You know, yeah. giving away, giving away ride height angles and things like that to their rivals. And yeah, uh, it's like on the one hand, you'd say that's immature of Hamilton. That certainly was the the knee jerk reaction, and of course it was. But on the other, it's kind of like. He probably felt like I have to be political here. I need to sort of show how the team are screwing me over. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like what we talked about with Alonso, um, and McLaren. Maybe Hamilton was eventually to get a taste of that medicine, uh, the way McLaren handled things. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and and, it's ven- and eventually way. came to us. And I I'll never forget the in 2018 at Alonso's last race, there was a joint press conference on the Friday between Hamilton and Alonso. And again, if you like, not often they put the two side by side, but it was Alonso's last race, and on either side of them, they had George Russell and Lando Norris who were about to come in to F1. And it's probably one of the most fast you can go back and watch it, it's one of the most fascinating press conferences of recent memory. Um, the two of them were, were put together, and the, the turmoil of the, the, the McLaren thing that happened between them in 07 was brought up a few times, and they both went on record like a joint face towards the press, were like, Well. It's actually a bit the way the team was. There was nothing really between me and Fernando. It was the way the team was managed. Would you agree? Yeah. And Fernando goes, "Yep, straight away." And the, and it's it's a, it's really good. You should go watch that because it almost ties a little knot into the the end of the story between Alonso and Hamilton. And um, mm. it, there there are still some untold stories that have to come out, and they will come out once both drivers. Alonso, I know, has put off doing a biography until his career is over. He was going to do one last year. He was in the middle of writing one, and he's put that off uh, because he's still racing. So obviously, still needs to keep certain connections happy, etc. Yeah. And uh, yeah, same with Hamilton. They, 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 once those two kind of retire, it'll be interesting to see what it's like 
when their biographies eventually come out, there'll be a few more nuggets from that 2007 season that will creep out. And Well, yeah, I mean, the, the juiciest teaser uh, I think I've ever heard and of anyone ever in the F1 paddock saying was Hamilton saying about 2007 at the end, like with that gearbox glitch at uh, Sao Paulo, saying um, he didn't understand back then, but he understands now what was going on. It was it's something like that that he said. And... <laughs> I mean, what he's basically saying is that there was, he can only surely be saying that there was political goings on that were affecting the outcome of that world championship battle, stuff that he cannot say now. And if he cannot say it now, well, it's because it must carry so much weight to it that it would be a scandal, you know? Yeah, it's, um, a, it's, it's a weird one because I think, funny enough, that Paddy Lowe podcast, if you listen to it, he actually, I think he specifically goes into what caused the gearbox glitch, and it's actually pretty believable. Um, it's pretty believable, but yeah. there, I, I can't help but think there was something else going on. But I, I do think, I do think um, it would have looked bad for F1 if a rookie came in and just beat everyone. Do you think? Do you think that's the reason? Yeah, I think so. I think. Really? I, I don't think. I'm not, uh, I don't mean to say. I don't oh, think that's I don't, how we lost the title. There. It's I just think. I never thought of it that way, and I, I never. I, it, I thought myself even a rookie coming in and beating everyone, wiping everyone, everyone to everyone on the grid. I always thought that. I thought it was like, well, it'll look bad for F1 if he beats everyone in his debut year. And it was the same with Jack Phillip in '96. I thought it'll just look bad if he wins, comes straight in and wins. I, I, and, I see uh, what your point. Um, it it, it devalues the rest of the grid. Do you get me? Like it, it devalues everyone else. It's like these were the talisman for years, and then they're not the talisman anymore. And Fair enough that they, they, Hamilton and Alonso invariably did that with the grid that's there, you know, and we've talked about that before. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't well, know. It's a very it's... interesting take on it. Like, I, I'm not dismissing it uh, by any means. Um, I never really thought of it in those terms. That is definitely one way of looking at it. Um, I, I would have thought they, they would have been doing everything to get uh, this new superstar, you know, uh, this ethnic minority to, to have like this poster boy for the sport for them winning that for him to win that world championship i think it could be much, been yeah. ideal for them uh so there's different ways of looking at that um and i i totally see what you, like in terms of jacques villeneuve in, in 96 if he had won that title yeah totally that would have devalued things but i i think um with hamilton it was like his his sheer ability was self-evident uh that it, it would have almost been more like when senna arrived on the scene yeah he didn't win the championship first season um but it would have been that feeling of like oh wow we've got this global superstar who's just incredible and he's, he's gone and won the world championship i think it would have been a net gain for them but at the same time i i'm i'm intrigued i never really thought of it in those terms that yeah yeah like, like, i think i think with hamilton as well sometimes he'll say things to dramatic effect when there's probably something very minor behind it and mm-hmm. let's see when when that might come out in the wash someday um it was based off that that quote was from a mark hughes article where i i suspect mark hughes probably knows more than he's letting on maybe there's some sort of an uh, look, they, definitely oh uh, well like um the truth is, is that any of them journalists who are very close to the Formula One teams, there's a level of trust and a degree of trust between them. And the sources can't always be revealed. And the, there's certain juicy stories that they are at liberties not to tell. Do you get yeah. me? Like there's, there is well, stuff that they do know. And there's, there's stuff like that. Like, like what you're saying there, he could very well know what that is. 
Um, Crashgate um, in 2008. The, when I first twigged on that that was, uh, you know, that, that there was foul play there was after reading a Mark Hughes article where he didn't explicitly say that something was going off here, going on here, but he, he raised some points that just didn't make any sense. Like, uh, I mean, that the, the, um, it didn't, the, the dis- strategic decisions that Renault made in that race didn't it make any strategic sense. sense yeah, yeah and I remember sense. posting that to the forums, and I, you got the usual, oh, you're, you know, put on the tinfoil hat, you're a conspiracy theorist, when no, actually, you're just, you know, using uh, deductive reasoning and rational thinking and critical thinking. Um, yeah, but anyway, it's, I guess what I'm saying is, like, Mark Hughes was po- posing that question. That was maybe only... A few months before the story broke so i almost wonder if it's like whatever conditions that meant that he couldn't come out and say that to begin with had then changed like i don't know if maybe it was to do with um I've been interested. Uh, Dennis. all these it was like game of thrones it was like that you know yeah. um in game of thrones you'd have this battle between these uh you know, there was like the Battle of the Bastards where you got the goodie versus the baddie and it was all hyped up towards. And that was yeah. kind of like Hamilton versus Alonso, the way it was depicted. Yeah. But there was uh, That's... there was more important stuff than that going on behind the scenes. Is the oh, reality. yeah, the, the whole spying scandal thing and everything. And like, it was weird. It's it's like F1, I'm sure, has had a lot of undercover stories that kind of get put in the background and they don't really see the light of day. Um and the, in 2007, this was just like, it came to, a few things came to the light to see the day, and the governing body had to be seen to be doing something about it. And yeah, uh, yeah, and, and, and there's obviously settling old scores and, and, and the political factions within F1. And, the, mm. you know, in 2007, I think Bernie and Max probably felt that Ron was getting a bit too big for his boots the way he had he had this new star driver with Hamilton and and the mm. team has re, had kind of reinvented itself a little bit and, and had this new front. And uh, I think maybe thought, oh, this fella's getting a bit, you know, like the only competition to Ferrari were McLaren that year. And yeah, like it, it's, it's incredible how it all balanced out, but it, it, it did balance out, but it wasn't pretty. Like it just no, it wasn't. Was, it, it was it was ugly, and only for it got to the stage where you know Max Mosley was like, right, you know, by right we have to disqualify the drivers and the constructors from it, and that would have ruined the whole story. And like, uh, you know, in, in the in the World Council meeting, and we we we'll just go into this more in detail. That the World Council meeting was is that Bernie came up with the idea of how about give him a hundred million dollars fine and disqualify them from constructors. And that was like a compromised penalty because as through the letter of the law, everything McLaren, everything McLaren should have done was been thrown out and also should have been let go for 2008 because they had Ferrari's IP to help design the car. So, um, yeah, and this is why it's uh, like justice is never truly done. It's always like even high court judges in the real world, they have to take into account the real world effects of like if say there's a massive fraud case massive scandal or something about a company who uh, have done something controversial and they should be hit with an enormous fine or like um, maybe they should be liquidated, whatever it may be. Um, The real world considerations of like, well, how many people do they employ and the knock-on effects, that is actually taken into consideration by the judges when they're making these decisions. Yeah, and, and it was and, like that with with yeah with Bernie like making that a hundred million fine uh, and disqualifying them from the constructors is a compromise. It, well, it's plainly because like you know 
what would it do to the sport if they they pretty much emasculated McLaren? You weirdly, know? weirdly enough, that that 2007 thing that was the first fissure in the crack between McLaren and Mercedes because they were in it together at that time. The mm. Mercedes owned 40% of McLaren back then. Yeah, that. I, I always liked them. I saw them as this sort of alliance against the sort of this evil giant of Ferrari. There's, I the thought FIA there was something brilliant true. about that. Yeah, but I know, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think Mercedes maybe were sensing the, the toxicity that was coming from McLaren. Um, didn't, look, they had to fork They had to fork out for the fine, apparently, Mercedes. Jesus uh, Christ. So, like, that was almost their buyout clause, effectively. Uh, yeah, it's essentially that's what happened. And then they, they yeah. started looking at... There was, it's a weird one with Mercedes and, and their... They liked being a partner, and they liked, you know, being part of the Formula One world. And Mercedes had this had this very long love hate relationship with uh, motorsport, and you know, everyone's kind of forgotten about the Le Mans disaster of '55, and like Mercedes did basically did not compete in motorsport again until basically the mid seven mid to late '80s, when they seen that BMW, Audi, other teams were competing in sports cars, and then. Formula One, they're like, oh, maybe we'll step our toe again here at Formula One because they were probably a bit tentative to go in and just the different management structures that came in. And then again, it was Dennis who manufactured this partnership with Mercedes. And it was only in after they won the title together in 1990, I think the second title in 99, that's when that year, that's when Mercedes bought a stake in McLaren. And then they increased that stake to 40% up till I think 2004, 2005. And they were kind of in it together then for a few years. And I think McLaren, uh, Mercedes were looking to the the idea of buying out McLaren eventually, you know, um, and then kind of McLaren, they did this combined uh, road car project together in the S- McLaren Mercedes SLR that Gordon Murray actually was involved in the design of this big, yeah. heavy lump of a supercar. You might remember it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was a joint collaboration project and kind of then around you had the 2007 thing, which Mercedes is like, oh, that's a tough one for the relationship. And then I think the, the nail in the coffin was is that uh, Ron Dennis was making plans to make a McLaren road car. And then that was the nail in the coffin for Mercedes. Is it right? We're doing this ourselves now. And the opportunity came up for Mercedes because they bought a 5% stake in Braun at the Italian Grand Prix 2009. And then at the end of the season, they bought the team out whole and just said, right, we're, it's now Mercedes. So, um, yeah. and again, like they, they ran this under the pretense that this is the cost cap. This is the photo thing that we're going for. We're not spending any more money than this. Didn't Total Wolf came in and told them you already, we already have the budget of Williams and we're still finishing fifth in the constructors or something, and uh, yeah. then went back to the Mercedes board. They thought Total Wolf was an up and coming, you know, new CEO guy, and he convinced them himself and Lauda convinced Mercedes to unleash the the money. Seen as Red Bull were taking the piss, they said, right, we're taking the piss now as well, and we'll see. Well, it was the might of Mercedes versus the might of Red Bull at the time, and you know who who sells more cars worldwide than red bull cans you know so that is just mercedes are an example of if if it's if the organization is run properly as it should be at every main level and it's given the resources like why would they not wipe the floor with the rest of the competition so long as the rest of the competition have all these uh glaring flaws that aren't being addressed you know like you look at the management structure and uh, how toxic it was at McLaren and just that I mean <laughs> talk about 
toxicity like ferrari uh, is just like a never-ending story of toxicity essentially i thought you know the the political machinations and that thing it's like mercedes are just like they just cut through all of the politics and just did it as it should have been done so yeah it makes sense that they're dominant that's it for this episode and thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast be sure to check out our facebook page where we've got supplementary videos and articles related to this podcast Join us next time.